Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. If you've got a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. The words will be uh, printed on the screen in back of me, and we'll get to 1 Corinthians 11 in just a moment. If you're kind of new with us, we have been in a series called Living in the Gray for the Glory of God. And just to be honest with you this morning, there's a lot of gray in this passage of Scripture. Some of you have already read ahead, and you know what I mean. This is probably one of the most complicated, most controversial passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. And yet, as we look at it today, I want to remind you that 2 Timothy says that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful, it's profitable for us. And this passage is no exception. And so let's, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, these strange verses, verses 2 to 16. This is the word of God. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is, is it a, a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for her covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. So as you can, you can tell, I approach this text with some reluctance today. Uh, I want to run from it, honestly. We, we could probably just skip it and move on. Uh, but this is the Word of God, and, uh, and we must uh, look at these verses together. I thought about why, why the reluctancy. I think there's at least two reasons. One, look at the difficulties in this text alone. I mean, so many questions that I'm seeking to answer this morning, and I probably won't answer all of them. But, but what about this, this head that he's talking about in verse 3? In verse 4, what is this prophecy? What's, what's going on there? What about this whole idea of, of head coverings for women to wear and not for men? And what about the, the glory of God and the glory of man? And then... 
he just throws in this whole idea of angels. Did you catch that in verse 10? Because of the angels, it's as if he's trying to say, this is a hard passage. I may as well make it even harder. Throw in some angels. And so we have the difficulties in the text alone, and, and, and we're in good company if we think this is hard to understand. Even the apostle Peter had this to say about Paul in 2 Peter 3.16. There are some things in his letters referring to Paul that are hard to understand. So even Peter was willing to say Paul is difficult at times to understand. But secondly, it's not only the difficulties in the text alone, it's also the fact that it clashes with our culture, right? This, this, this clashes with our culture. This seems very outdated and even oppressive to women. And so we're, we're dealing with the, the culture ramifications of a passage like this one. How does it apply to our setting? I mean, this is first century. Uh, what, what, what does it look like for us in our day, especially in a day where gender seems to be something that you can choose for yourself rather than something that's given to us in creation by God himself. This was a quote by Emma Watson uh, a few years back. She said this, gender is a matter of personal choice, not a given, irreversible fact of creation. And so that's, that's where we find ourselves today in our culture. Uh, we think that self-identifying as a man or as a woman is, is up to us. Not something that God gives to us. And so we have the difficulties in the text, the fact that it clashes with culture. And to be honest, as Christians, sometimes we look at this and we think, how embarrassing for us. I'm, I'm sorry for those of you who are new, maybe as a guest, uh, that we have to, to preach on a topic like head coverings at Corinth. You know, it seems kind of embarrassing, to be honest with you. And yet, what, what I'm finding as I'm studying through this text it's not just that this is right and true. I want you to see it as good and beautiful, all right? So, so I'm, I'm, I'm praying that, that the goal for us this morning is that we would move from reluctancy to rejoicing in what God has for us here in this text. And that, that's going to take a miracle through his Holy Spirit, but that's what he loves to do through his word. And so let's, let's jump in. We've got a lot to tackle. Buckle in with me. Let me start with just the main point that I want to just bring over this entire text, and that is this. When we remember Jesus, we resemble Jesus, and so reflect Jesus to a watching world. I'm going to walk through this passage of Scripture using that as kind of the main point that drives the text. And so let's begin with this whole idea of remembering Jesus. Look at verse 2 again with me. Paul writes, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now it seems strange for Paul to actually give this unqualified praise. He's, he's commending the Corinthians. And as you know, they were deserving of correction. And so you have to wonder, is he kind of buttering them up in some way before he you know, says some bad news to, to them? I mean, is he kind of like a boss would, like, hey, let me tell you some good things about you because I have a lot of bad things that I want to share later on. Is that what he's doing? I don't think so. I think that Paul had a outlook. He had a graceful outlook when he looked at these Corinthians. He remembered that they had received the gospel. They were sanctified. They were set apart in Jesus and God was going to finish the work that he began in them. And he's praising them for two things. For number one, for remembering him. 
Just one verse earlier, we've seen this verse, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so they are following his example as he follows Christ. They're remembering his example. They are also maintaining the traditions that were delivered them, to them. These were the teachings of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just a couple chapters later, Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And so he's delivered this gospel to the Corinthians. They have received it and are maintaining the gospel. They're keeping the gospel. And yet, if you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, if you recall, Paul has to remind them again and again and again of what they keep forgetting. They are a prideful, immature group of young believers, and they're prone to listen to the current of the culture rather than see all things through the lens of Christ. And so he keeps reminding them to go back to the gospel. When they had divisions in the church, he reminded them of the cross of Christ. That's where the wisdom and the power of God is found. When they were struggling with sexual immorality, he said, hey, your your, your body is a member of Christ. When they were dealing with these issues of food and whether or not to eat or to cause your brother to stumble, they said, wait, wait, you can't do that. That's the brother for whom Christ died. So he keeps putting Jesus in front of them because they keep forgetting about him, I thought, of, uh, I thought of Dory from Finding Nemo. You guys remember this movie, uh, Pixar movie, years back, one of my favorite movies, Disney movies of all time. Uh, what I love about uh, Dory is she's a lot like us. All right, we have short-term gospel memory loss. All right? Dory was one who would be told something, and like 10 seconds later, she would forget it, right? She would just keep on swimming and then wonder why uh, Marlon's fo- following after her. And we're going to be the same way in our relationship with Christ. We, we, keep, we keep forgetting the main thing. We keep forgetting to follow Jesus. And so Paul was wanting to keep Jesus in front of the Corinthians, to remember Jesus. Because when we remember Jesus, we will resemble Jesus. And that's point number two. Look at verse three with me. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So he's saying, yes, you remember the gospel to some extent. You're maintaining the traditions. You remember the gospel, but you're pretty confused when it comes to gender. And remember, they were in Corinth. This was a place of sexual immorality a lot of gender confusion. If we think our culture is messed up, Corinth was just as or maybe even more. So let's be careful about saying, well, things just keep getting worse. Corinth was a, was a place filled with so much sin and sexual immorality. And so they were navigating this whole issue of, of gender as new Christians. And I think this is the key verse right here, verse three, if you want to just circle this one. This, this verse here is the basis for the entire passage that we're going to look at together. He says here, I want you to understand. I want you to get this. This is so imperative that you understand what I'm going to say here. So here's what he's saying in verse 3. There is an order. There is an order of authority and submission that's built into creation. 
There is an order of authority and submission that's built into creation. It's modeled for us in the Trinity, and it's expressed most clearly in Jesus. That's what he's saying. There's There's a beauty, a design of God built into creation wherein there is authority and submission modeled for us in the Trinity and expressed most clearly in Christ. And so I want you to think about the Trinity for a minute. Let's think hard about this and try to understand what he's getting at here. He's saying that within the economy of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all three are God. There is one God existing in three persons. Now, this baffles our minds. This is a mystery, the Trinity, as we speak about it, but they're equal in value. They're equal in in power, right? They're, They're equal in status. Not one has more power than the other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all one. God existing in three persons with different uh, functions. And so as we look at the Trinity here and how they relate, within the Trinity, God the Son willingly subjects himself to the authority of God the Father. And we see that when he stepped down here to earth, became a man, became flesh, the God-man, in order to die on a cross for our sins. He, he submitted to the Father. His entire life was in dependency upon his Father in heaven. And yet in doing so, he never lost his dignity or identity or value as God. And so this, this becomes a model for us as we look at the order of authority and submission expressed in our relationships most clearly in our relationship as husband and wife. It mirrors this reality of the Trinity. We look at this word head, and it's repeated in verse 3. The word itself is repeated 50 times in the New Testament. Every time, that word means authority. And so look at it again. But every man, I'm sorry, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so when it comes to our relationship as husband and wife, we play out this whole drama of the Trinity, in particular with Christ and his relationship with the Father. The husband is the head of his wife. Now, in saying that, it it seems kind of archaic, right, outdated, oppressive in our culture today that's offensive, and yet when we look at the life of Jesus and how Jesus is our loving head, he gives himself for us. He laid down his life for us. So this is a death to self in loving our wives, husbands. In Ephesians 5.25 Paul writes, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So if you want to see what it means to be head over your wife, look to Christ. Look to Jesus and how he gave himself up for you. That's the kind of love that we ought to have. That's the kind of attitude, that humble attitude of giving ourselves for our wives. This is not superiority. This is humility. This is sacrificial, servant-hearted love. Colossians 3.19, Paul says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So in no way do you use authority as a license for domestic violence or abuse. 
We, we do not take a verse like this and think, well, oh yeah, authority in our day means I'm the one who is the boss, I'm the one who's in control, and I make all the decisions, and everybody else must bow down to me. No, that's anti-scripture. That's anti-really what Jesus came to do for us, right? He sacrificed his life for us. He's our loving head. And so, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and then wives are then to submit to their husbands. Now, if, if you were offended by husbands being the head, uh, you're offended probably even more so by this comment of wives submitting, right? That, that word is difficult for us to swallow, a wife submitting to her husband. But when you think about this, wives, you're looking at Christ as the model for your submission to your husband. How did Christ submit to the Father? He did it willingly and gladly, not at a loss of dignity or identity. This was a willing a willingness to honor his Father in heaven. In Ephesians 5.22, Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So as you're submitting to the Lord Jesus and following his example, you're submitting to your husband's loving leadership. It's not hard to follow your husband's leadership when he's giving his life for you. So this is the model for us. Christ's love and the way that he not only was our head, but also he submitted his life to the Father. I love what Charles Spurgeon writes here, though. He was uh, doing this at a wedding, and he said this to the wife, or the soon-to-be wife. According to the teaching of the Bible, the husband is the head of the wife. Don't you try to be the head, but you be the neck. Then you can turn the head whichever way you like. <laughs> it's funny because it's kind of true, right? Um, Wives, remember, you have so much influence in the way that you support your husband, in the way that you guide your husband. We're going to talk a little bit later about your, your, you're the God-given helper for your husband, and that's not a secondary status. The Holy Spirit is called our helper in the Bible. And so, keep remembering, Paul says, keep remembering that Jesus is your model and motivation when it comes to these relationships, when it comes to being a husband and a wife. Jesus has been there and done that, right? He has lovingly led us by dying on the cross for our sins, and he has gladly and willingly submitted to the Father when he was here on the earth, and so we're called to resemble Jesus really in his death. This was convicting for me as I, as I looked at my own relationship with my wife I am called to die on a daily basis so that she would flourish. That's what it means to lead. You lead by dying to yourself, husband, so that you can love your wife in that way. And when you lead that way, she is more prone to follow Christ in the way that he submitted and gave up his life for us. And so Jesus becomes our model and motivation. How did Christ love us? How did Christ submit to God? We resemble Jesus in this way. I thought about this. It's not just for married couples, though. He's, he's speaking to the church here, and this is in the context of, as we'll see, uh, corporate worship. And so singles are here as well. Children are here as well. And so in God's good design, this whole idea of authority applies to all of us. All of us have a head. We all have authority figures in our lives, and that's a good thing. 
When you think about the church, Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now again, that's a difficult verse for me to share with you as your pastor, but what it means is that God puts people to help lead and shepherd his church and his flock, and they are to be under shepherds to the chief shepherd. So as much as we as your pastors and elders are seeking to to lead you, we're seeking to lay down our lives for you so that you would flourish here. We want to serve you. So this is not like we want to come over you in an authoritarian type of way, but no, we want to come under and serve and love you so that you can serve and love others and grow in your faith in Christ as well. And so that applies to all of us. It ought to be a protection for us in the church to know there are people who care about me here in the outcome of my faith. Also, it says in Ephesians 5.21, in regards to submission, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is all of us. We're deferring to one another. We're humbling ourselves in a way that we want the best for one another. We submit just as Jesus submitted willingly to the Father. And so this is God's good design, this order here. I want you to see this is permanent. It's fixed in the Trinity in creation. Even though it's going to remain countercultural, it's permanent, but it's also beautiful because it mirrors the beauty of Christ. And so the main point, again, when we remember Jesus, we resemble Jesus and so reflect Jesus to a watching world. So let's look at this idea of reflecting Jesus. Look at verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Jump down to verses 13 to 15. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Lots of questions here. Lots of questions. Remember, the context here is, is a corporate worship setting. And men and women are both praying and prophesying. Now, I'm going to kind of put this whole idea of prophesying just lay it here for later, all right? We're going to talk about that when we get to chapters 12 to 14. So what I do want to make a comment about here is this. In the corporate worship setting, men and women were doing things. It wasn't just the men. Women were praying. Women were probably reading scripture. They were part of the gathering together. And I want us to continue to look at what scriptures say about this because sometimes we think culturally it's just the men who do all of these things. But women were serving, women were part of that gathering. They weren't preaching, that's clear in scripture, uh, but they were in other settings teaching and they were praying. Now, in this particular cultural setting, this first century culture, what Paul is getting at here is he's showing how this timeless truth of God's order, right? God's order of authority and submission built into creation modeled for us in the Trinity, expressed clearly in Christ, that timeless truth, that principle, he's showing how it applies now in this first century culture. Culturally, this biblical principle is visibly expressed and demonstrated by women wearing head coverings. 
This was showing their submission to their husbands and to God. Culturally, that was the practice. It was probably a veil, but we're not sure. And yet, it's not really the point of this passage. It's a cultural application of this bigger principle that we saw in verse 3. And so, it would be similar. I just want to share um, kind of something that you might understand better. Paul encouraged in his letters that uh, the congregations that he planted would, uh, would greet one another with a holy kiss. So, after this service... If you come through the line looking for a kiss, I am not going to kiss you, all right? That is not culturally appropriate, right? Right? Uh, just a hug or a handshake would do, okay? That, that's more fitting with our culture today. Now, I, I want to be careful, though, because there are churches that still practice this, and they do so out of reverence for the Word of God. They're, they're seeking to obey what it says here in Scripture, and I don't want to look down upon churches that are doing this. Like I said, they're doing it for the motive of trying to obey what God has said here. And yet, I think that if we go in the direction of trying to culturally uh, take on all these practices, real quickly, our, our Christianity is going to be external. Think about this. If, if all of us here were wearing our head coverings, or women, you were wearing your head coverings today, and uh, there, there, there comes a guest here today who just wanted to visit Oak Hill Church, and, and she has nothing on her head. She is made to feel a little awkward, for one, um, a little kind of out of place, and made to feel like, is Christianity uh, an external thing? Like, is this something I've got to wear in order for me to be right with God? And so we can get into a lot of these cultural questions, but Paul, I think, is more concerned about the heart this, this covering represents something. Is your heart submissive to your husband and to the beauty of God's design in creation? That's what he's saying here. Now, unfortunately, a minority of women in the church and men were sinning in this way. They were subverting the beauty of God's design. Some men were, were covering their head, and they shouldn't have. Evidently, back then, as I was reading through commentaries... Uh, men oftentimes uh, would, would worship pagan gods with some kind of covering over their head. Or they would wear something on their heads as, as a way of flaunting their social status. And so God's word here to them at that time in that culture was saying, no, you don't have to wear anything on your head. But women, this was meant at that point in time to express visibly their submission to God and to their husbands. And so if they wouldn't be doing that in that culture, it would then bring dishonor upon themselves and upon their husband and upon the church. This was a shame and honor culture, an honor and shame culture. And our culture is very different. We're more inclined to think of ourselves as individuals. And when we, when we have sin, it's more of an individual thing where we have guilt. In that culture, if you uh, sinned or you went against God's word, it was, it was a shameful thing. It brought dishonor upon not only yourself, but around your family and into God himself. And so in this whole culture, they were acting independently and, and really stealing glory from God. Notice the repetition here of this idea of dishonor. In verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Verse 
5, again, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. And then jump down to verse 14, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? So notice that the language of disgrace and dishonor, this was a culture of shame and and honor. So this was the, the bigger motivation here. Will you honor God? Will you honor the relationship that he's given to you? Or will you bring shame upon yourself and upon your husband and upon God? Now, in this context, they were also blurring the distinctions between men and women. In women not wanting to wear something on their head and even putting their hair down was a way of saying, hey, I don't have to follow. I'm my own person. And thereby blurring the distinctions in a visible way to say, we're no different, we're the same. Now, if that was happening back then in Corinth, how much more so today? Are we blurring the distinctions between men and women, right? And I'm not, I'm not trying to say, uh, you know, hey, cultural stereotypes of what it means to be a man, like real men are outdoors men, you know, they are hunters and fishermen and, and they talk like this evidently. I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's what it means to be a real man, right? And real women, hey, I don't even know what I'm going to say there. I'm not going to get in trouble. Um, but uh, biblically, what does it look like to be a man and to be a woman? We're blurring the distinctions in our culture today and, and it's sad, to be honest with you. Um, I was made aware, Pastor Josh told me, that um, this past week, some of you heard this, Dwayne Wade, did you hear about this? So he's a uh, former NBA basketball player for the Miami Heat, and uh, he's got a 12-year-old son who recently came out as transgender. This was uh, what the son recently said to Dwayne Wade and his wife. Let me read here. Oh, this is actually Dwayne speaking. So once uh, Zaya, our 12-year-old, came home, first Zion, that was his God-given name or the name that was given to him at birth. I don't know if everyone knows, originally named Zion, born as a boy, came home and said this. Hey, so I want to talk to you guys. I think going forward, I'm ready to live my truth. And I want to be referenced as she and her. I would love for you guys to call me Zaya, not Zion. Before we point the finger at the culture in this, I think it ought to sadden us. I mean, can you imagine? Some of you have children around that age, and them coming to you and, and saying this, that I, uh, I want to change my name, and I want to be now referenced as a, as a she and a her. I want to live my truth. Sad. Twelve years old. I don't know about you, but most kids at 12 are, are seeking their identity, right? They're in adolescence. There's a lot of stuff going on in their hearts. And here he is, I'm going to keep calling him he, is making a decision about his sexuality. So what are we to do with, with this? What can we learn in this cultural moment? Well, here's how Dwayne Wade handled it, and he told this to Ellen on the show. After... His son said this to him. He said, I looked at her 
and said, you are our leader. You are our leader, and it's our opportunity to allow you to be a voice. And I just want to say, first, I appreciate his unconditional love, but, but love and support are not synonymous. No, Dwayne Wade, you are the leader. You are the dad and the parent that your son needs in this time. So let me just take a moment to say, hey, if this ever happens to any of us, begin by acknowledging the struggle. Because I, I think probably in a, in a room this big, um, there may have been, um, may be even today, some of you who struggle with same-sex attraction. And maybe children in this room are, are hearing about these things in, uh, in school. Acknowledge the struggle. Don't try to downplay it or stuff it. Acknowledge that this is a struggle and get help. And secondly, make Jesus more beautiful to yourself and to your children. Don't dwell so much on the sin as much as making Jesus more beautiful to your child as they wrestle with these issues. And then thirdly, it goes without saying, pray. Pray, pray, and be hopeful. Be hopeful that God can do a work of grace in the heart of your child. It's sad that we talk about these things, but it's real life. It was happening even in Corinth. It's happening today. But in the end, your feelings cannot change who God made you to be. When we think about living our truth or being our true self, that's valued so much in our culture today. What we want to say is we want you to be your true self in Jesus because that's who God made you to be. And you will flourish most when you submit to him. And so as we think about the, the distinctions that are blurred, we can bring honor or shame. And there was shame that was being brought into the church because of this refusal to wear these head coverings and to submit to God's word in this, in this way. Conversely, we can bring honor to God in the way that we live these out. In verse 7 through 12, look at what Paul says here. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God." So here's two things that we see in how we bring glory then to God and not shame in our relationships. He appeals to creation to say there are differences, there are distinctions. God has made us male and female for a reason. Way back in Genesis 1.27, Paul says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God saw that it would be inadequate for his glory to be expressed only in a man. So he created woman to display the beauty of his grace and glory through us as image bearers together. And yet we are distinct. We are different, male and female. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It was not good that man would be alone. And so he created woman to be his God-given helper, distinctively different, showing the glory of God in our differences. But it's not just our differences, it's also the oneness 
It's the beauty of the oneness that he created in verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. And so we ought not to think that, hey, since we're male and female, we live independent lives. We need one another. And there's this beauty in this unity that God has given to us in his design in creating us this way. And this beauty mirrors the Trinity in Genesis 2:23, from the very beginning, this was like the first words, the first words recorded by a human. And I love what it said here. Then the man said, this is at last, as bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, so the very first words uttered by a human that we have recorded in scripture is a love poem. Isn't that incredible? It shows us the heart of God, and it shows us where all this is pointing. We were made to be part of a a love story, and our relationship reflects the beauty and mirrors the beauty of Christ in the church and mirrors the beauty of the Trinity. And so I'm going to come back to verse 10 as we get ready to close here. This strange, strange verse says, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nobody knows what that means. (laughs) And I'm going to give my best shot, okay? So angels, you know the angels were sent as messengers in the Bible, right? They came with a message to proclaim uh, in in the birth of Jesus, right? Gabriel, the angel. They're not only the messengers, they're, they're also witnesses in the Bible. We see them as kind of these invisible witnesses watching what's going on in our world. And so Hebrews... 13, I think it is, where it talks about we're entertaining angels unaware. In 2 Peter, I think it says that we are, or that angels are longing to look into these things. They're longing to look into what's going on here and what we're doing and how we're relating with one another. I think in this passage, I think the angels are, are, are looking kind of in a little window to see how is this relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, how is that giving a little picture of what's coming when Christ returns? A little picture of the future is what they're watching and waiting and anticipating. They're longing to look into those things that are coming. And so we're reflecting God's glory and beauty to a watching world, even to angels. And I want to end with this story. So I came across uh, this, this article, this story about, I think it's in Australia, where there's a ballroom dancing show, kind of like Dancing with the Stars here in the United States. And uh, there was kind of a, a petition that was made that was um, trying to get same-sex couples to be allowed on this show, to, to dance together. And this uh, particular uh, group of folks who made this decision, and honestly, I was surprised, given the, the culture that we live in today, they said, no, 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 we, we, we can't do that. We, we can't allow that to happen because... Ballroom dancing, I don't know if you've done ballroom dancing, ballroom dancing, the very beauty of ballroom dancing is seen in its contrast. One is leading, one is being led. One is, is lifting, and one is being lifted. So the, the beauty happens in this contrast. The, the, the difference is, draw out the beauty of that dance. And so they decided, no, we we can't allow 
same-sex couples to enter this because we want to restore the beauty of ballroom dancing. I think about it for us in our lives. Um, we're probably not dancing, but some of us have seen on social media, you got the one couple over here um, who's doing like exercise and yoga together, and they, they say, here's the expectation, and then you got the other couple over here, and they're like falling all over the place. Have you seen that before, expectation then reality? When it comes to our lives, it would be nice for us to picture as we end this you know, message, hey, let's live out the beauty of God's design as men and women, as we relate with one another, but we know better, right? We're going to fall, we're going to falter, we're going to fail, and it's going to be hard, and yet even that points us to the beauty of Christ and our dependency upon him in our brokenness. It makes the story of Christ even more beautiful when we come to him as men and women, we fall on our faces and we say, I need you. Jesus.